1: welcome to the highway hi-fi podcast where we go track by track through the underbelly of music history using research trivia and curios from our record collections to
3: locate the roots of our obsession with vinyl records i'm joe and i'm ryan congratulations amigo you've reached the world's finest podcast for music that's buried in the unmarked grave next to Arch Stanton. We're going to start this episode off with a little bit of trivia.
1: All right, I am going to go first with trivia with the non-audio round. And this is one that we've used before. It's a deep cut. Or a deep pickle, as it were.
3: (laughs) I don't think deep pickle is a phrase commonly. It's like, you've gotten yourself into a real deep pickle this time. What
1: I'm going to do is I'm going to read some lines from lyrics of songs that you know. Okay. And I'm going to replace some of the words with the word pickle and I would like for you to tell me the name of the song and the artist. Okay. For the first one. Flew off early in the pickle of dawn in a metal pickle locked in time, skimming waves of an underground pickle in some kind of dream pickle fantasy.
4: (laughs) Oh, gosh. Can you say it one more time? Do you want me to sing it? Sure.
1: Sing it. All right. Flew off early in the pickle of dawn In a metal pickle locked in time Skimming waves of an underground pickle In some kind of dream pickle fantasy
4: Oh, my gosh.
3: Oh, my gosh. I should know this. I want to say Tom Waits, but I think that's just because of the way you saying it. Nah, somebody from the 70s, maybe.
1: It is from the
4: 70s. Oh, gosh. It's
5: killing me. Cleveland.
3: Oh, oh, okay. It's a uh, paraubu. 30 seconds over Tokyo? That is it. Okay. Whew. Okay. Woo.
1: Number two, it's a little bit longer, and I am not probably going to sing this one. I'm so happy, because today I found my pickles. They're in my head. I'm so pickle. That's okay, because so are you. Broke our mirrors. Sunday morning is pickle, for all I care. (laughs) And I'm not scared. Light my pickle in a daze, because I've found pickles.
3: I would know that pickle song anywhere. That's uh, Lithium by Nirvana. Very good. This works because pickles are kind of my lithium. Keep me calm as a cucumber.
1: (laughs) All right, number three. Luscious and gorgeous. Oh, what a hunk of pickle. Call out the pickle guard. She creamed in her pickle as he picked up her beans from off the pickle top bar. Oh my gosh.
3: I don't know that one. Lou Reed Street Hassle. Yeah, I should have got that. The cream. Cream the pickle. That was a dead dead Lou Reed giveaway.
1: Yep. All right, number four. After all, it was a great big pickle. With lots of pickles to run to. Yeah, and if she had to pickle Tryon... She had one little pickle she was going to keep.
3: That's a um, Tom Petty American Girl? American Pickle?
1: That's it. American Pickle.
3: Alright, this is the last one.
1: Okay. Pickle scene is crazy. Pickles start up each and every day. I saw another one, just the other pickle. A special new pickle.
3: Yeah, that's a uh, pavement cut your hair. Cut your pickle. When you're reading it, it sounds like you've got some sort of glitch. <laughs> like, just like dogs hear when humans talk. Like blah, 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 blah. Pickle, pickle, blah, blah, pickle, pickle. Really? It sounds weird? Yeah, it's really weird. I like it, though. All right, good work. All right, my turn. I've got an audio quiz for you. This one's called Ennio My. And so, what I did is I put uh, eight of the most famous Ennio Morricone scores, and then I put them through the machine and made them go backwards. So, all you got to do is tell me what movie each clip is from. Okay. Okay. Track one. <laughs> Track two. Track three. Four. Six track seven. you know any of those ones backward or forward
1: i don't feel very good about this one we're gonna play that again at the end though
3: yeah we'll play it again at the end and you have to um, answer every question in pickle form. Pickle upon a pickle in a pickle.
1: And on that, we should move along.
5: Fastly. Everybody's talking at me I don't hear a word they're saying Only the echoes of
4: my mind
1: It was in 1983 that Peter Edward Tevis had to make one of the hardest career decisions of his life. Tevis, the owner of Peter Edward Tevis Records, or Pet Records, high in the Hollywood Hills, had recorded and released six albums since 1974, and the albums were doing well, with over 100,000 selling in 1982 alone. But he knew it couldn't continue, at least not like it had been, He was a giant in the educational record subgenre of training birds to talk. It was an Italian numerologist who informed Tevis that his initials spelled the word pet. And, according to Tevis, it was like a light came down. It was so amazing. I had an artist make me a logo, and I ended up starting pet records. He started with just $1,000 and a desperate need to pay rent. In that first decade, he worked hard, delivering the records by hand to pet stores up and down the California coast. By 1983, he had distribution handling it all, but his concern was what he should do next. How many LPs about training birds to talk can one artist make? He feared he was saturating the market. Tevis reached deep within himself to a much earlier time in his life when he was a cowboy singer in Rome, and started working immediately on his next series, Puppy Training. Starting your puppy right. Set to the country and western sounds of his youth, when he was something of an Italian sensation, appearing on TV variety shows where he'd sing rodeo songs while throwing a lasso around. His image also adorned Italian romance comic books as The Hunky American. At 24 years old, in 1961, Tevis made a decision to drop out of college and move to Italy so that he could study acting under famed teacher Lee Strasberg, who'd offered him a scholarship. While in Italy, he found himself working as a stage manager for the Teatro de Opera. Always putting out feelers for people who could offer him vocal lessons, he met an Italian lady who helped young singers get their foot in the door. She made an appointment for Tevis to audition for an RCA rep named Piero Ricordi. It was in that RCA office that Peter Tevis sang a version of Woody Guthrie's Pastures of Plenty, which would unexpectedly go on to be one of the most important moments in cinema history.
3: RCA signed Tevis to a contract for two singles and sent him to the studio to meet with a young Italian pop music composer named Ennio Morricone. The two transformed Guthrie's Pastors of Plenty into something much different, with Tevis's claw-hammer-guitar-style taking lead amongst a menagerie of distant sonic elements.
6: Well, I've wandered all over your green-growing land, and wherever your crops are, I'll lend you my hand. On the edge of your cities, you'll see me, and then I come with the dust, and I'm gone with the wind.
3: The single didn't amount to much right away, so Tevis moseyed on his way. Around the same time, an up-and-coming Italian director named Sergio Leone was putting together his new movie, a western called Fistful of Dollars. Everything was falling into place for the film. And he was getting ready to contact his old pal, Francisco Lavanino, who had already scored Leone's previous films, The Colossus of Rhodes and The Last Days of Pompeii. Lavanino knew he had hit the jackpot with Sergio. The kid was going places, and fast. He just needed to cling to his coattails and ride it out. His scores were plenty good enough for westerns, and so he had it made in a shade, or so he thought. The company financing Fistful wanted Leone to meet with some hotshot kid they had under contract, but Lava wasn't concerned. He'd listened to the kid's other scores and laughed him off quickly before buying himself a house. On credit. Leone himself had no interest in meeting with this Morricone kid either. He didn't like the other scores he'd made, and they most certainly didn't sound like what he wanted for this film, which was The Majesty of High Noon and Rio Bravo. The sounds of the Mexican-American border, or so he had believed. The first meeting between Sergio Leone and Ennio Morricone turned out to be nowhere near the first meeting at all. Morricone recognized Leone as an old childhood friend. They attended grade school together. It turns out that's enough for Leone to totally change his mind. And to this day, Lavagnino sits by his phone, waiting for Sergio to call. Leone made it clear that he didn't like Morricone's previous film score efforts, and he wanted something that sounded more like Dimitri Tomakin's music for Rio Bravo and the Alamo. <laughs> The two each knew exactly what the film needed, but they couldn't find common ground. Somehow, Tevis's Pastors of Plenty single was played for Leone, and he finally heard what he wanted. He loved it. It was everything he needed and more. He got rid of the more by wiping Tevis's vocals and had Morricone re-record it as an instrumental piece. The reworked music would instantly be a touchstone for an entire genre of film music. ¶¶ We
4: can fight. We can fight.
1: Future Bird album auteur Tevis first heard this new version when he went to see Fistful of Dollars in an Italian movie theater. Being a little confused and offended, Tevis made his way to RCA where he threatened to sue. RCA cooled Tevis by asking what he wanted exactly. All Peter Tevis asked for was another recording session with Morricone. Tevis and Morricone released an album of songs composed by Morricone and sung by Tevis. Tevis also went on to sing in nearly a dozen spaghetti westerns before calling it quits and heading back home to teach birds how to talk. A few years later, he could barely scrape together his rent money. Hardly a footnote in music history, forgotten by all but a handful of hardcore budgie enthusiasts. In this episode, we track the legacy of the music of the grittiest of film styles. Scores of scores that are riddled with bullet holes. Whiskey bottles, scattered cards, wanted posters, and bloodstains. Tunes that put a bounty on your mind and will ride you down in the desert. So saddle up your pony and load your six-gun. Down that bottle and kiss your senorita's farewell. Prepare yourself... For double crosses and double double crosses. Get another coffin ready because today we're shooting for the history of spaghetti western music.
3: Once the stalwart of American adventure cinema, by the early 1960s, westerns were relegated to mostly episodic television shows aimed at selling sugary cereal to young buckaroos and Davy Crockett caps who were grasping at their daisy BB guns. Gone were the days of the sweeping cinematic cowboy operas of John Ford, Howard Hawks, and Anthony Mann on the silver screen. Replaced by over 25 primetime small box westerns, that had their own charm but lacked the production quality and tended to be more sentimental than impactful. Big-screen Westerns were left for dead in America. However, Europe during the same time frame was ravenous for Western movies. Television was much less common in European households, and the cowboy movies offered a glimpse into another world in another time. A perfect escape for a continent that was still reeling from the past half-century's wars. In particular, Italians flocked to the cinemas after spending two decades under the oppression and censorship of Benito Mussolini. With a renewed freedom for arts and culture, the Italian people finally enjoyed films from other countries. They went meatballs for grand Hollywood epics and American westerns, especially. A new era of Italian film came to prominence in Rome when the Italian film studio Cinesita Studios, started churning out imitations of American films that the locals were clamoring for. Cinecita had originally been funded by the fascist regime, but was quickly converted into Europe's largest film production studio. While filmmakers from the north part of the country, like Visconti, Rossellini, Fellini, Antonioni, tended towards neorealism or arthouse-style movies, the films produced in the south part of the country were much more focused on quantity. A windfall of movies, often more than 200, were produced each year by the film studios, which meant movies needed to be made quickly, cheaply, and often recklessly.
1: Italian filmmakers were already well acquainted with insulting subgenre nicknames prior to the advent of the spaghetti western. Peplum, or sword and sandal films, was a term given to Italian films that wanted to capture the feel of Hollywood epics, especially those based on the Bible or Greek and Roman history and mythology. Films like Ben-Hur, Spartacus, and The Ten Commandments. The films made during this period were distinguished by their ill-fitting English-language overdubs of Italian dialogue. American bodybuilder-slash-actor Steve Reeves starred as Hercules in a series of these films. Other sword-and-sandal series were about heroes like Goliath, Machiste, Samson, and Ursus. Hundreds of peplum movies were made during the 60s, featuring Vikings and swashbucklers and barbarians. And while the biggest trend in the late 50s and the early to mid 60s were sword and sandal epics, all sorts of movies were being made, including westerns, which tended to be comedies or musical comedies. I'm sure they loved Oklahoma, during the production of 1959's movie, The Last Days of Pompeii, director Mario Bonnard fell ill and was replaced by an assistant named Sergio Leone. Though he was uncredited, this was Leone's directorial debut. It was primarily Leone, having grown tired of the waning interest in historical epics, who turned to a passion from his youth and decided to try his hand at filming a western. Leone's Yojimbo ripoff, A Fistful of Dollars, was a revelation to low-budget filmmaking. Released in 64 in Italy and 67 in America, the movie was a stunning success. The shocking financial relevance of the movie led to a huge wave of imitators, some 500 movies from roughly 64 to 73, this dominant period of off-kilter, poorly dubbed, low-budget cowboy films became known as Spaghetti Westerns.
3: So I guess we should take just a minute to uh, talk about the name Spaghetti Westerns and and if the name is offensive in any way. According to one man who claims he's Italian on the internet, no, it's fine.
1: (laughs) I have Italian friends and they're
3: fine with it. No, I mean, just generally speaking, it seems like there was almost certainly meant to be a pejorative term at, uh, when it was dubbed. I think it's it's sort of been embraced and, and is an okay thing to kind of say. There's some debate over who actually said it. Most people land on the Spanish journalist named Alfonso Sanchez, but some people say Sergio Leone named it. These are true, like, kind of multicultural affairs, like... You know, the studio was filmed in Rome, but they would film a lot of the movie in Spain. And there was French movies and Spanish movies. They called the Spanish movies paella westerns. So the German ones were called sauerkraut
1: westerns by a lot of people. And that was the East Germans were making westerns like that.
3: Did the uh, Canadian westerns, were they poutine westerns?
1: They might have been the poutine or back bacon westerns.
3: Anyways, we're going to call them Spaghetti Westerns with no great offense intended. A lot of times, the directors didn't speak English, and they had these English actors, and so what they would do is just let everybody record in their own language and just dub everything over, which is another thing that the bad dubbing is pretty well known for Spaghetti Westerns. Well, sometimes when they change names as well to make names like seem more American or whatever,
1: Sergio Leone and Ennio Morricone and others working on Fistful of Dollars changed their names or had them changed to American-sounding names
3: for the release in the U.S. Tell me the story about Harry Dean Stanton, like how they added something to make... Just tell me the story you told me about Harry Dean Stanton. They added a prologue
1: to... Fistful of Dollars, ABC did it, and it aired only once on American TV, and the prologue features Harry Dean Stanton giving orders to a body double of Clint Eastwood's man with no name, so that he wasn't just doing it with us having no idea why.
3: Though there is a surprising degree of variety amongst the movies, three main aspects of Leone's nascent vision laid a groundwork for the entire film genre. First was thematic. Leone purposefully, almost gleefully, eschewed the notion of the white hat versus black hat dichotomy of early westerns. Whereas John Ford, with the exception of maybe the Searchers, presented optimism in his character studies, Leone had a much darker and more pessimistic view of humanity, no doubt colored by the fairly recent horrors of fascism and war. The movies served as parables about society, asking hard questions about motives and perspectives. Populous genre films presented a perfect vessel for the leftist-leaning messages to get to the masses without overt commentary. They presented environs of almost non-stop violence, gritty realism, cold environments, political overtones, unsentimental feelings, and characters driven by selfishness and ambiguous morality. Subversion, nihilism, and bloodlust are completely acceptable frameworks for character motivation. There was no more singular idea of hero ideology. The second facet of spaghetti westerns derived from Leone was the visual starkness of the movies. The studios used several sites in Italy and Spain, that looked strikingly similar to the American Southwest. The cinematic aspects of Leone's films have become commonplace. It's hard to imagine modern films without them. The juxtaposition of expansive wide shots and harrowing close-ups. Slow burned sweeping panoramic vistas, languid camera panning and carefully framed composition, tension and economy of scene setting. The films would carry on for extended periods with nary a word of dialogue at a snail's pace, nothing to break the stifling silence, until, of course, there were the surprising and brutal sudden burst of actions. All of this punctuated with dark iconography and decaying historical structure, blood, dirt and fire. And finally, the focus of today's episode was the unforgettable sound of these movies. Much like the entire genre of film, the soundtracks of spaghetti westerns were born from a need for economy, speed, and quantity. While there is some universality in the music's quality and soundscapes, each score was unique when coupled with the visuals. The lack of dialogue meant that the music was often forced to move the story. Beyond just setting the mood, like most film scores, the music of Spaghetti Westerns was both a separate character and a reflection of the characters. A wordless narrator.
1: And this colorful sonic painting is primarily born from the work of one composer. Just as all Italian Westerns are undeniably linked to Sergio Leone, the musical style is almost always credited to the work of the maestro and Eo Morricone. The symbiotic connection between Leone's direction and Morricone's music, which we will circle back to in a moment, was a driving force for the success of the Man with No Name trilogy and the army of bandits who attempted to pillage their styles in the following years. There is simply no other genre that is as defined by its music. The musical style is so ubiquitous you imagine that this was the actual music that was played in the Old West, that these sounds were always there and just needed to be plucked from history. Morricone was well-versed in the emotive operatic Italian musical tradition. While undoubtedly the composer and his cronies would have much preferred to create the lush orchestral scores of the days of the golden age of Hollywood, that simply wasn't an option for the studios making these films. The composers wanted to make the music in the vein of the classical American Westerns, John Wayne music. Morricone very much wanted to imitate the aforementioned Dmitri Tiomkin and Giacchino Angelo, an Italian soundtrack composer who, in the era before Leone's Revolution, had made fine approximations of American Western music blended with European Romantic classical. But Morricone was the man with no symphony. Without being able to fully realize lush and carefully constructed orchestrations, the Spaghetti Western composers had to rely on something different altogether. Experimentation, character themes, and bizarre instrumentation. What couldn't be said with ten cellos could be said with a twangy guitar, mariachi horn lines, a bullwhip, and lonesome wordless choruses. The music of big-budget Hollywood westerns had years to be developed. These Italian soundtracks often had to be written and recorded in days, very much like a precursor to library music. In fact, the wealth of innovative composers would become the basis for the Italian production music scene. Crack musicians who weren't afraid to be bold and different and leave in what others might cut out for being too unusual.
3: Morricone overcame his fiscal limitations by creating a sort of hybrid style where he would cut back bare classical orchestral string arrangements by adding different types of musical elements that had previously thought to be incongruent. Cowboy music, surf rock, and Mexican music. Later, composers would take this idea even further by blending in genres like garage, funk, folk, vocal music, and even psychedelic. This marriage of contemporary and classic was almost unheard of before Morricone. Adding to the exploratory nature of the scores was a willingness to use uncommon instrumentations. Ocarinas, piccolos, harmonicas, Jews' harps, mariachi trumpets, banjo, chimes, melodicas, and bells. On top of all that, elements that were once considered foley complements or Ambient environmental noise became integral to the song structure, stampeding rhythms, coyote whistles, distant wailing, gunshots, and whips. Finally, there were the wordless choruses and strange human vocalizations that make Morcone's scores unforgettable. It was as if he could invoke from his choirs angelic tongues and demonic incantations, often at the same time. He would have his vocalist not just sing, but whistle, chant, screech, yodel, chortle, grunt, shout, and make animal calls. It's like what you might hear coming from Jack Palance's hotel room after dark. No sound was out of bounds. This is not to say that the swiftly created music was blindly created, and then randomly forced into the scenes. Quite the opposite. Leone would work closely with Morricone to give him an idea of what he envisioned for the movie and from the score. Morcone would come out with interconnected themes that could be pieced together and structured as needed for the film. A chord pattern might outline a minor chord for the antagonist, and then the same pattern would reemerge in a major key when the hero arrived. Or perhaps instrumentation would change, like how in The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, the same two-note motif is done with a flute for Blondie, an ocarina for Angel Eyes, and a yelping human for Tuco. The tapestry of themes weave in and out of the film, often creating something that was cohesive but constantly evolving. The wavering nature of orchestration reinforced the complicated ideas of morality presented in the movies. There's not simply a good guy theme and a bad guy theme, but overlapping themes that can change, blend, confront each other, and sometimes fall apart. Morricone's scores demonstrated masterful restraint in using soft pulses that build pressure, slowly rising to a thunderous crescendo at the height of the action. Music was integral to these movies abound with a spacious structure. Starting with Good, Bad, and the Ugly, Leone would not simply add the music post-production, but rather would play the music on set during filming. The scores would dominate all elements of the film. In a sense, the music scripted the movie. It controlled the scenic rhythm he would adapt camera movements to match the flow of the music. The music would animate the actors, focus the crew, and pace the director. This technique of fully integrating the soundtrack with the movie was a driving force in both The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, and Once Upon a Time in the West, which are arguably the two greatest film scores of all time. So eat a dick, Bernard Herrmann, and you too, John Williams. To fully understand the development of how the Spaghetti Western soundtrack became the gold standard for film scores, we want to briefly look at the musical background of Morricone. However, as usual with this podcast, we'd rather spend most of our time highlighting the amazing lesser-known composers, both inside and outside the maestro's giant influential orbit, and the impact of Spaghetti Western music on the broader realm of popular music.
1: Prolific is too flimsy a word to describe the output of the Neo Morricone, who penned in the neighborhood of 500 soundtracks for movies and television across nearly every conceivable film genre. A true son of the Eternal City, Morricone never left Rome to compose music and refused to learn English, and usually viewed Hollywood with a bit of disdain. He began his career as a trumpet player in various jazz outfits, but eventually found a steady career in composing and arranging music for Italy's National Radio Network, as well as RCA. He would continue on to write for television and movies and would occasionally play, typically trumpet, as a session musician. He was unimpressed by the scores for the realist films that he played on and felt like he could do better. Around the same time he started making film scores, Morricone also joined an avant-garde composer collective, Gruppo Improvisazione di Nuovo Consonanzo, known as The Group. The far-ahead-of-its-time group was inspired by the experimental music of John Cage and was dedicated to totally improvisational compositions that made use of noise techniques, tape music, electronic music, and anti-musical systems. For decades, this laboratory of composers was on the cutting edge of music and many of these ideas, strategies, players, and conceptualizations would find their way into Morricone's soundtracks. His ability to navigate the classical, composition, popular styles, and experimental techniques were critical to his versatility and his longevity. Morricone's musical style became ubiquitous with spaghetti westerns. With Leone, he would end up doing six films. The Dollars Trilogy, Once Upon a Time, Duck, You Sucker, and My Name is Nobody. He'd also work with the other two great Sergios of Italo Westerns, Solima and Corbucci. Sergio Solima's The Big Gun Down was an overshadowed classic that benefited from a soundtrack that has a ripping, sinister surf guitar riff As angular as Lee Van Cleef's jawline. Sergio Corbucci's darker and more depraved westerns allowed Morricone to explore some more ominous soundscapes. The score for The Mercenary gives me chills, like I'm experiencing synesthesia for bravery. reckless abandon found in the score to Navajo Joe must be pretty similar to the reckless abandon that Burt Reynolds felt in shaving his mustache to play the titular character. The call and response chanting from the male and female choruses over a war drum beat and doomed sounding piano riff are immediately recognizable from the constant use in other films. And my personal favorite spaghetti western the great silence had a gorgeous understated tune that was as delicate and disturbing as the blood in the snow film like santa klaus kinski Morricone wasn't afraid to lend his talents to lesser-known directors, which led him to provide the music for a few other great movies. Bullets Don't Argue, Vamos a Matar, Compañeros, A Pistol for Ringo, Death Rides a Horse, and Two Mules for Sister Sarah. Which at times could easily be mistaken for a horror soundtrack if it weren't for all that braying, or ass-blasting, as it's known in the biz. All told, he did about 30 soundtracks during the golden age of Spaghetti Westerns. Of course, the maestro would write music for movies for the next half-century with an unimaginable list of talented directors. In a somewhat poetic endnote to his career, Morricone finally received the elusive Oscar for his score for the Spaghetti Western revival flick, The Hateful Eight, directed by Quentin Tarantino who had long championed his work and placed it in his soundtracks. His last Western score was just as impactful as ever.
3: Just as every pasta needs a sauce, every gang leader needs a posse. Morricone was surrounded by an incredible group of talented and innovative musicians, arrangers, and composers. Many of whom contributed fantastic film music along with and apart from the maestro. Bruno Nicolai is regularly regarded as the next best composer of Italian Western music, so much so that once Nicolai started making his own compositions, people assumed that Morricone was simply using a pseudonym, especially after hearing his truly magnificent Indio Black, or Adios Sabata, soundtrack. In actuality, it may be the finest non-Morricone soundtrack of the genre. Nikolai was a composer, arranger, conductor, and keyboardist who worked closely with Morricone in the mid-60s. A friend of Morricone from their musical conservatory days, Nikolai acted as a musical supervisor and conductor for the Dollars Trilogy soundtracks. Some speculate that Nikolai was the force behind adding the sound effects into the music, as Morricone never much used this practice after they parted ways. Though plagued by second fiddle status to his former partner, Nikolai had a long career in composing, but was very private and never garnered the acclaim he deserved. The more we listened to his soundtracks, the greater appreciation we gained for him being his own unique talent with a different vision of Western music. His score for Dead Men Ride has a daring immediacy that resonates well past being the music for some long-forgotten B-movie. (laughs) ¶¶ While the Have a Good Funeral, My Friend soundtrack has a brooding melody that rides into the sunset of your mind.
1: Like garlic passing through your colon. The man with the most famous whistle in all of cinema is none other than Alessandro Alessandroni. Another childhood friend of Morricone was already one of the busiest session players in Italy when he was hired on as a singer and multi-instrumentalist for his first western score, Pistols Don't Argue. Of course, it was his work on the Dollars trilogy, including the unforgettable whistle and the Dwayne Eddy guitar licks that burned his music into the souls of the audience. If that wasn't enough, Alessandroni was the leader of the vocal group I Cantore Moderni, which included his wife, Julia De Mutis. This wordless choir haunted the reverie across Italian cinema and eventually wound up singing on the most infectious Swedish sexploitation tune ever appropriated by the Muppets, Mana Mana. Interesting side note about Julia De Mudes. she herself was a talented experimental composer writing a record called Ae Sergente De Civita, The Sources of Civilization, which is a pseudo-anthropological exploration released under her alter ego, Kema. It's wonderfully bizarre. Eventually, Alessandroni would try his hand at composing his own soundtracks. It's very likely that he co-wrote many of the most famous tunes of the era without getting songwriting credit. Here's his El Puro, or La Taglia Etua, Luomo Lo Amazzo Io, which has some whistling that would make Andrew Bird want to leave the nest. The whistle, a nickname dubbed by Fellini, would go on to be one of the most revered Italian library musicians, unearthing sounds across boundless genres from ambient to lounge jazz to pre-industrial to psych, swing, polka. It is near impossible to find music that he is involved with that isn't absolutely stunning. Thankfully, reissue labels are finally starting to make his work available again. We just need someone to put out the soundtrack to "Hands Up, Dead Man, You're Under Arrest," which features this slinky freakout banditos that shreds like a buried alive Dick Dale. As well as the Wawa laden cowboy hot tub jingle, jangle, jingle, sexy western.
3: Edda del Orso possessed one of the most evocative soprano voices as one of Alessandrone's I Cantore Moderni. She is the disembodied voice that haunts a huge number of Italian soundtracks. Without using any words, her singing can be devastatingly sad, swelteringly seductive, or hilariously mocking. She did a lot of work with pop musicians, establishing her vocal stylings as an exemplar of the 60s Italian sound. Her lonesome siren song, that is the theme of Once Upon a Time in the West, is absolutely mesmerizing. ¶¶ While the influence of Morricone was vast, the sheer amount of spaghetti westerns being produced meant that there was plenty of work for the roving packs of Italian composers. Most directors wanted something pretty similar to what Morricone was doing, but, like the ideas of what the Italian western truly was, expanded, so did the ideas of how to score the movies. Westerns became crazier, more exploitative, more slapstick, and more specialized, as did the music. Towards the 70s, the tragic hero, revenge tales, and moral ambiguity themes gave way to satirical westerns, comedy westerns, political or Zapata westerns, historical westerns, Greek myth westerns, spaghetti western musicals, gore westerns, and random cult westerns that featured some truly awkward stuff. We'll get to a few of those in a moment. There is plenty of fertile ground to bring in all sorts of genre-bending ideas from tons of great musicians.
1: Louis Bakalov stands as one of Morricone's true peers in stature in Italian film music. The Jewish, Argentine-born composer emigrated to Italy as a young adult and almost immediately started working on Cineseta B-movies. He would rise to prominence quickly with his dark and brooding scores a touch more bleak than Aniel, His ominous guitar lines cut like a knife across the scalp. His piano work banged death rattles. The themes would languidly sway like a body hanging from the gallows. He sometimes worked bits of his native South American tango into his music just to bring a little lightness to his darker delivery. Of course, it was the opening theme to the Corbucci smash hit Django that brought Bakalov into the mainstream, using an American Elvis-esque singer, Rocky Roberts, to give some swagger and swing to the theme song about the coffin-toting loner played inimitably by Franco Nero. Django!
6: Django, have you all?
1: The song was a perfect first impression and became one of the first bona fide spaghetti western hits crossing over to the pop world. There are a myriad of cover versions in all sorts of languages, Japanese, Greek, and of course, Italian. Once Django established Bakalov, he worked on some of the best westerns of the era, including Bullet for the General, Sugar Cold, The Price of Power, His Name Was King, and The Grand Duel. Needless to say, Tarantino pillaged a ton of Bakalov music. Bakalov had a long and storied career going on to work with Italian prog rockers New Trolls and Osana, and won an Oscar in the 90s for his score to Il Postino, The Postman, which apparently doesn't star post-apocalypse hottie, speedy delivery man, Mr. McFeely.
3: The land of make-believe was never the same after Skynet got a hold of it. Spaghetti Western films love their sequels. After the success of Django and its offspring flicks, all sorts of characters would start to become serialized in movies. Like the characters themselves, they knew no loyalty and worked only for money, so the studios would switch up actors and directors at will. Often the stories were completely unrelated from film to film. Many times, releases would be given nonsensical names with the title character added on for international recognition. The Django franchise, for example... Had over 30 direct and indirect spin offs. It's like if the MCU only made Bucky Barnes movies. Beyond Blonde and Django, there were multiple films about anti heroes like Ringo, Trinity, Sabata, and Sartana. The first Sartana movie, If You Meet Sartana Pray for Death, has a fantastically jaunty theme by Pirio Piccioni. Piccione was a jazz-loving lawyer who worked in the film business, securing rights when Michelangelo Antonioni asked him to score a documentary for one of his apprentices. This was the first of some 300 movie soundtracks, many of which incorporated swirling funk with baby-making jazziness. His absolute masterpiece, not a spaghetti western, is the luscious soundtrack for Camille 2000, which is worth seeking out. His music is also used in log jamming, the porno within a movie in Big Lebowski. You can imagine where he goes from here. He fixes the cable. While we're on Sartana, if you get a chance, watch Light the Fuse, Sartana is coming. If not for Bruno Nicolai's amazing score, then for the scene when the magician inventor gunfighter uses a pipe organ cannon to blow apart scores of frightened goons. And then there was
4: Sabata,
1: who was sometimes the same as Sartana. Marcello Giambini penned the uber catchy Bollywood sounding track from the original Sabata.
7: Hey, amico, c'è Sabata.
4: Hai
7: chiuso. <laughs> <laughs>
1: The Sabata movie is pretty great, but the best part is the antagonist Banjo, who, as you might surmise, has a banjo with a built-in gun. Jambini went on to do a lot of cool electronic music, religious music, and scores for Joe D'Amato's Anthropophagus, The Grim Reaper, and Erotic Nights of the Living Dead, which were probably not religious music per se. And speaking of Bollywood, we can't pass up an opportunity to speak a little about the curry westerns, also known as dacoit westerns. Dacoit means banditry in Hindi. A small subgenre of the flood of movies coming from India, the curry westerns would combine the spaghetti western tropes and samurai movies with typical Bollywood-style performances, including over-the-top song and dance numbers and very strong moral lessons. The movies are supremely entertaining, and the music of many of them is absolutely mind-blowing, and something we may have to get back to in the future. The most famous curry western is 1975's Cholet, and the soundtrack is impeccable, mixing Morricone, Bollywood Cinematic Worlds, Country Disco, and the classic Indian vocal performance.
3: Back to Italy, Lounge Master General Piero Emiliane is primarily known for his extra-leisurely library music output, including the aforementioned Mananana. His silky jazz-infused scores added sensuality and freedom to the myriad of movies he scored. Now, a legend of library music, his music makes you feel cooler than Clint Eastwood in an igloo. And almost as crazy. Right turn, Clyde. Here's his enchanting theme to the movie Blood River.
1: Roberto Pregadio created one of the ultimate soundtracks with his whistling theme for Pistolero de la Ave Maria, or the forgotten pistolero. It's been used countless times in television shows and commercials as an effective sonic shorthand for heroism. And as iconic as the track is, Pregadio really shined with his more downbeat grooves, like this one from the movie Bullet in the Forehead, called Crying. Gaudio would also go on to produce music for Oscar snubbed films like SS Experimental Love Camp, SS Camp Women's Hell, and SS Clown College.
3: Desperate as a coyote and twice as furry, Nico Fidenko ambles across the dark desert night in his song The Texican. Fidenko was already a successful singer by the time he started composing soundtracks having been the first Italian singer to have a million-seller single with "Legata a un Granella de Sabaglia. He would compose and sing bunches of westerns, including Taste of Killing, I Want Him Dead, and Those Dirty Dogs, before finding a cannibal-loving soulmate in exploitation director extraordinaire Joe D'Amato. With a voice as sunburnt, as silky as his, I'd let him gnaw on my femur,
6: they call Texican a man without fear. They know, they know the bold Texican.
1: Riz Ortolani is also no stranger to exploitation. In fact, it is what he is best known for. In 1962, Ortolani had an oddball hit with the song More from the soundtrack Mondo Kane. Mondo movies are sort of documentary travelogues of shocking cultural practices, often of foreign cultures, that are designed to horrify and enthrall viewers. The footage is often staged and terribly racist, but they had a bit of a renaissance, as it were, in the 1960s with Mondo Kane being one of the most popular. The surprising success of the serene, light, orchestral theme propelled Ortolani to fame and to land a ton of writing gigs, including many spaghetti westerns. The best of the bunch might be his cowboy lounge classic, Days of Anger which would be recycled by Tarantino in Django Unchained. Ortolani would go on to be best remembered for his stunning Whirlwind Island horror soundtrack to Cannibal Holocaust, which is the most pleasant dinner music for when you are dinner.
3: They Call Me Trinity was the most successful comedy western starring the unlikely Laurel and Hardy on horseback stylings of Terrence Hill and Bud Spencer. Franco Michalizzi's theme song is fantastic. Sounds like a lounge singer who ingested bad P.O. Day. You
6: may think he's a sleepy type guy, always takes his time. Soon I know you'll be changing your mind. When you see him, use a gun. Oh, when you see him, use a gun. He's the top of the West Always cool, is the best, he keeps alive with his mm-hmm.
1: Francesco De Masi was one of the few composers who actually worked on westerns before Morricone. In the world of spaghetti westerns, this made him stand out a bit from the onslaught of imitators. Less interested in the operatic grandeur, Demasi's scores were more subtle and atmospheric, like the shapeless shadows of buzzards circling a dying man. Demasi would score over 200 movies, including the original Inglorious Bastards, before retiring to teach classical music at a university. Here's his self-proclaimed favorite score for the movie Johnny Hamlet which, of course, is a terrible, wonderful spaghetti western version of Hamlet. Conscience doth make cowards of us all, amigo.
3: Angelo Francesco Lavanino, who we mentioned in the Peter Tevis story, was a mentor of DeMasi and another composer who had been working on westerns since the 50s and had adapted his sound for the post-Morricani crowd. Still, his work had a golden era sensibility, like the stellar music for the movie Pistol for 100 Coffins, also known as Gun for 100 Graves. You should probably talk about how all these Spaghetti Western movies, like we keep saying or, or called, or known, also known as, all these Spaghetti Western movies have like three or four titles. They've got the Italian title, and then they have the first working into English, and then sometimes they redo it again into a different, I mean, it's, it's hard to keep track of all, all of these titles.
1: And sometimes they only translate part of the title, like Pistolero for 100
3: Coffins. Yeah, and sometimes they'll just add on, like, Django. Like, gun for a hundred graves, comma, Django. (laughs) Sartana.
1: Nora Orlandi was the first female composer in Italian cinema. Her music for westerns, giallos, and Euro-spy films have a fantastic, smoky, sinister presence. Along with her frequent arranger, Robbie Poitivan, Orlandi would create intriguing sounds often with her own soprano voice that matched perfectly with jazz noir. Her masterpiece, the music for The Strange Vice of Mrs. Ward, is yet another piece of music that is instantly recognizable for its inclusion in Tarantino music. However, the music of the Western Death Doesn't Count Dollars, or Death at Ol Rock*, has Nancy Sinatra-esque vocals that are otherworldly.
3: Composing somewhere around 250 movie scores across a half century of work, Carlo Rusticelli is up there with Morricone in terms of mass production. He has several great western scores, including God Forgives I Don't, which sounds like a horror movie walking through the wrong saloon swinging doors.
1: So oversaturated on the Italian music scene, brothers Guido and Mauricio de Angelis were forced to use all sorts of strange stage names, before settling on Oliver Onions. The brothers were an absolute force in the late 70s, writing some of the most memorable pop-based spaghetti western songs that shoot holes in the wall between pop music and western soundtracks. They scored Trinity is Still My Name in 1971, which ended up being the top-grossing Italian film at the time. Things got a bit weirder in nineteen seventy seven with Manaha, which has been described as veering unpredictably between Italian Western ballads, contemporary pop songs, synth-led horror motifs, and seventies prog rock. Quite frankly, it sounds like ween.
5: Nine, nine, nine. At night you look for whom To hold your soul apart And make you run away till now And your mind won't forget
4: Your land. You can't you love and
1: you love but far and away, our favorite is Kioma, which has an unforgettable female vocal performance that is equal parts Kate Bush and Calamity Jane. But you really have to wait. For the black metal vocalist who clearly missed his turn and ended up at the world's weirdest cowboy karaoke night. I can't stop listening.
3: Matalo has been described as John Ford on acid. A standout in the genre, the movie follows the tale of a hippie-looking renegade mercilessly destroying everything he encounters. A true nod to the times, there is plenty of subversive political and social commentary, as well as psychedelic excursions that have nothing to do with the thinly held-together plot. All that and a sweet boomerang showdown. However, what really makes this anachronistic Western swirl is the fantastic garage rock-inspired soundtrack by Mario Migliardi. Migliardi was a big fan of the Hammond organ and threw more modern rock sounds into his work. The theme for Matalo shreds across the screen, setting the stage for one of the most cerebral and modern spaghetti Westerns.
1: And we have to tip the cowboy hat to Danielle Patucci for his soundtrack to Black Killer, if only because he makes the guitar sound like a sinister laugh. It stings like a scorpion left in your boot, or the chafing of my thighs after a pony ride.
3: While Jean Piero Reverberi's Canto di Morte from Django, Prepare a Coffin, is clearly an imitation of Morricone, it is still one of the better ones. Pew, 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 pew.
1: Scott Walker takes a glorious stab at singing the theme song for Robert Hossein's 1969 French Western, The Rope and the Cult. The song was recorded around the same time that Scott Four was, and the style may have even bled into Walker's opening track on Scott Four: The Seventh Seal.
6: I seek the man who killed my friend, and when we meet, my life may end. Depends upon my gun and my gun spells hope in the land where the rope and the cold are yeah. I swore a vow on my dying breath to ride a trail that ends in death. And death could strike with a fight
3: and of a lightning bolt in the land with a rope and the I was surprised it was that late because I figured by Scott Four he was fairly independent to wanting to kind of do his own thing. I could not find any story about how
1: that came about, whether he knew Hossein or who set him up with that gig.
3: Did you see how much those singles go for for that? No, how much? Expensive. Expensive. It's a great song. Robbie Poitovin collaborated with tons of the composers we've discussed, but had some fine handiwork himself, like this theme to Killer Calibro 32, which rings like Peter Gunn raiding a space age bachelor pad with whip noises. A Killer Grotto.
1: Johnny Ferriero is another composer that you'll want to know. Here's his scorching flamenco guitar track, Hot Mexico, from Death Sentence. Legend is that Feliciano heard it and somehow went blind. The human body is an amazing thing.
3: One of my favorite under-the-radar soundtracks is Lalo Gori's ripping score for Tequila, also known as Fuzzy the Hero, because of course it is. Much like its potent potable eponym, it makes you want to fight, sing, vomit, and pretend you're an outlaw all at the same time, when really you're just going to end up wetting yourself and crying about your dead pets. It's a true story.
1: I was halfway there this afternoon. (laughs)
3: I don't want to ask which half.
1: No, you don't. Deeper into the depths of the Spaghetti Western Film catalog, you start to find some pretty bizarro stuff and some pretty wackadoodle music right along with it. And while this next handful of musicians and soundtracks may not be as iconic as some of the greats, they give you an idea of how the mass production of the movie industry made for some pretty lenient editing choices, which thankfully provides plenty of fodder for us cowpokes to shovel through.
3: First, we need to talk about Blind Man. Director Fernando Baldi's movie would be plenty memorable if just for the batshit crazy plot of a blind gunfighter and his trusty seeing-eye horse who is hired to deliver 50 mail-order brides to their minor husbands-in-waiting by circumventing the whole Mexican army. But the reason the film is truly a cult spaghetti western is the presence of none other than the Beatles' third-best drummer, Ringo Starr. Ringo found himself in a bit of a listless drift after the breakup of the world's most famous band. He drank and drummed himself across countless solo albums of his more famous friends, as well as taking bit parts in cult films like Candy, Bad Fingers' Magic Christian, and Zappa's 200 Motels. Eventually, he inebriatedly decided that he perhaps should try his hand at being an action star, figuring his command of the English language was at least at Schwarzenegger or Lundgren level of competency. For his third language, it's pretty good. (laughs) (laughs) He signed on for a Western movie with the band's later-day manager, Alan Klein, and quickly found himself in Almeria, Spain, playing a sadistic foil to Blind Man. He shot snakes, tortures Blind Man, assaults brides, stabs a rancher, and eventually gets gunned down by the sight-impaired hotshot which is surprisingly similar to John Lennon's post-Beatle career. Oh, and then his corpse is nearly married to his unwilling love interest at his own funeral. And guess who's in the background of several scenes? It's rock and roll Zelig and chief Beatle alarm clockist Mal Evans, who is waving guns around like a madman, which would later turn out to be not really good practice for him. Ringo was so excited about the movie that when he got back to England, he sat down with Pete Ham to write an unsolicited theme song for the movie. Ringo's space dirge of a theme was wholeheartedly rejected by the film studio and was relegated to a forgotten B-side, where confused tons of fans who had no idea about Ringo's stint as Natalo Western villain. Wow. One of the reasons that Ringo's song was shot dead in the street is that the capable music director, Stelvio Capriani, had already created a fascinating sound collage soundtrack for the movie. Capriani got his start when a priest taught him to play organ, and he would eventually work the cruise ship scene. He would do solid scores for the bounty hunter, and shoot first, laugh last. But Capriani is most known for his horror work, especially the man-eating octopus creature feature, Tentacoli, which grabs you and never lets go. I don't know anything about Dolores Clayman, nor
1: do I want to, but he or she, did write this theme to Captain Apache, which is often regarded as one of the worst spaghetti westerns. It's like they let William Shatner do a spaghetti western theme, but better because it's actually Lee Van Cleef. Holy shit, when is this album coming out?
7: They're after me with guns and knives and fast, fast horses. They're after me with bombs and drives and Fast, fast win. They're gonna tail me, trail me, try to nail me there. But they haven't got a prayer.
3: And who would have guessed that Carlos Savina, the composer of this charming exploitation song-poem theme for Hey Amigo, You're Dead, (laughs) would go on to be the musical director for The Godfather. What can you say? The guy loves severed horse heads.
6: And no one will escape his evil ride
1: Four of the Apocalypse has one of the strangest spaghetti western soundtracks, as it sounds pretty much like an Eagles rip-off soft country rock that could have fit pretty well in our cult music episode. You practically hear the bubbling brooks and bubbling bongs on the first track moving on.
5: us to run together for people who don't know their
4: destiny. Trying just to make it to San City, the only thing they know.
3: Django Kill, If You Live, Shoot, is often considered one of the weirdest and bloodiest of all Spaghetti Westerns. Despite the title, it has nothing to do with the other 30 Django movies, and has more to do with splattering blood. The surrealistic, psychedelic, and shocking movie features a detailed scalping, vampire bats attacking a man being crucified, townspeople ravenously digging golden bullets out of the flesh of a still-living man, and an alcoholic oracle parrot. He was probably taught by Peter Tevis. No doubt that Joe Dorowski and Jarmusch were paying attention to how con- the conventions and mores of westerns were being shattered right before their eyes. Ivan Vandor's slinky music is an unassuming entrance to the genre-bending horror show that follows. <laughs> If you still have an insatiable thirst for the grotesque, might we recommend either Get Mean or the Paella Western Cutthroats 9, which set new bars for gory westerns. The music is nothing too interesting, but feel free to enjoy the sound of your own squeamishness.
1: Not in the mood for Blood and Guts? Maybe try out Rita of the West, which is a light-hearted comedy musical western about Rita, a fun fighter, working with Chief Silly Bull, to steal the white man's gold. Here's a catchy number from one of the innumerable culturally insensitive scenes. This one featuring a native chorus line. Star of the movie, Rita Pavone, is an incredibly famous Italian ballad singer, but I only know her from her duet with an animated tater called My Name is Potato. It's like Paula Abdul with MC Scat Cat, except, you know, it's Potato.
3: Light music singer Fred Bongosto's song from the movie Day After Tomorrow is basically Sesame Street's The Count, reveling over a high body count.
6: reason you don't know He wants to kill a man Maybe one, maybe two, or maybe
4: three Maybe four,
7: maybe five,
4: or maybe... Seven, Maybe seven, maybe nine He wants to kill a man Maybe he wants to kill a man.
1: By the mid-70s, the craze for westerns had all but run dry. Some critics credit the horrible turn toward goofy comedy westerns that soured the audiences to the style. Whatever the cause, movies stopped making much money and eventually stopped getting made. Italian studios turned to their interest to other genre films like giallo, horror, poliziesco, and erotic films, taking most of these composers along with them. However, spaghetti westerns had already left an indelible mark on pop culture, especially counterculture. The genre hit right at the time where the world was shifting from dichotomous morality into something more fluid, where right and wrong were relative and always changing. Spaghetti Westerns sounded, looked, and felt rebellious. A reimagining of something American, stoic, proud, and traditional toward something multicultural, emotional, grassroots, and revolutionary. Just as the cinematic style provided a whole new template for how to make low-budget genre flicks, so too did the music impact both soundtracks and popular music. Regarding movie music, Morricone and Spaghetti Western soundtracks showed that music can drive the film rather than accompany the visual. It can be ambitious and grandiose and even weird, but still work within the context of the film. The music can genre-hop. It can be a blend of traditional and modern and experimental. It can be simple and quiet. It could shake the theater. John Carpenter was paying attention in a basement with his stacks of synths. Hans Zimmer was listening when he added in that damn Brom sound. Library musicians, advertisers, producers all learned the tricks. As director Edgar Wright spoke of Morricone's influence on films, he could make an average movie into a must-see, a good movie into art, and a great movie into legend.
3: however, it was popular music where the influence of spaghetti westerns takes a more circuitous route, starting earliest in of all places jamaica. following the independence a huge population was fraught with poverty and gang violence. besides the dance parties that would become the impetus for the first wave of ska, One of the only entertainment escapes was going to the cinema to watch cheap, after-run movies, which were usually Bollywood, Kung Fu, or European Westerns. The moviegoers identified with the outlaw ethos, and attitude of the streetwise antiheroes of the spaghetti Westerns they were watching. Legend has it that some of the cinemas even had to ban the movies, as rude boys would get so amped up they would start shooting at the screens in jubilation. Spaghetti Western style, swagger, and characters, especially Django, would eventually work their way into a huge number of 60s and 70s ska and reggae songs. To be clear, the music didn't reflect the dynamic sounds of the soundtracks, but rather the musicians took the themes, mostly through name-checking, and worked them into their sound. There are tons of examples. In fact, Trojan issued a compilation of some of these tracks called The Big Gundown. Here's one of my favorites, A Fistful of Dollars by The Crystallites. Ah!
7: A fistful of dollars.
3: Passion for Westerns is captured legendarily in the Harder They Come film, when Jimmy Cliff's character is enthralled while watching a screening of Django. His friend reminded him that the hero can't die to the last reel.
1: Meanwhile, back in Europe, another group of outcasts is finding connection with spaghetti westerns. Punks started turning to spaghetti westerns as an anti-establishment and DIY kindred spirit. Especially The Clash, whose cover for their album, "Give 'Em Enough Rope, is clearly inspired by the movies. The Clash soaked in all kinds of influence when they were at their peak. Reggae, ska, rockabilly, glam, and spaghetti western soundtracks. In 1981, The Clash used Morricone's 60 Seconds to What from A Few Dollars More as their entrance music. Joe Strummer scored Alex Cox's film Walker, a western that allowed Strummer to show off his love for the genre especially in the nine-minute epic The Brooding Side of Madness. Paul Simonon's post-clash band Havana 3AM is itself almost an homage to the style. Big Audio Dynamite, Mick Jones's lighter band, samples the good, the bad, and the ugly for their song, Medicine Show.
2: Us, to Benetito, Pacifico, Maria Ramirez, no one
3: Scattered all across rock and roll, you can see the influence of the Italian composer's gravitas and auditory storytelling. Love's Alone Again or Dylan's Signore, Nick Cave's Red Right Hand, Ween's Buenos Tardes Amigo. The music provided a template for cosmic Americana bands and cowpunk bands to sound more desolate, moody, atmospheric, and darkly western. It's all over the sound of Calexico, Green on Red, the Meat Puppets, Gravenhurst, Sixteen Horsepower, and Angels of Light. The sound was so cool that it became a shorthand for cool. There's an unending amount of unauthorized Morricone samples in hip-hop that include The Orb, Wu-Tang, Eminem, Jay-Z, and Arles Barkley. Phantomas, Portishead, Radiohead, Gorillaz all cite the music as a major influence. The combination of surf guitar into a fuller, more developed sound certainly spoke to the Pixies, the Dead Kennedys, and shadowy men on a shadowy planet. Even Metallica used Ennio's Ecstasy of Gold as their concert walk-on music, kindly providing their concert goers with at least a small moment of good music.
1: There's still a strong demand for this timeless music. Plenty of labels have reissued the seminal works and the hippest of the lesser known, Morricone has some wonderful comps, but we suggest seeking out any of the five volumes of the Ecstasy of Gold compilations by Semi-Automatic Records. They're out of print, and they're expensive, and harder to get than gold bullions protected on an armored Confederate train car, but they're an amazing mix of non-Morricone soundtrack music. We also suggest checking out a Portland band called Federale, who performs almost exclusively spaghetti western style music. Formed by former Brian Jonestown Massacre bass player Colin Hegna, the band blends fuzzy psych and classic Morricone sound to spectacular results. Worth a listen, amigo.
6: I swore I'd never sin again, I swore that I'd never kid again, but I broke my vow again, and again. For a
1: film style that truly lasted only a small handful of years, the music of Spaghetti Westerns is eternal. A sound that was equal parts ingenuity, frugality, and necessity with almost no expectations and no boundaries. And while Western films and Western music seem to be of a bygone era, they just keep reinventing themselves. A good reminder that even when a style is bullet-riddled, left for dead, dying in the desert, you shouldn't count it out until the credits roll.
3: Did you find any soundtracks that you think were, like, that surprised you how good they were?
1: The India Black soundtrack... Is one of the best things I've ever heard. It's amazing. I it might end up being my favorite of all of them, even more so than any of the Morricone ones.
3: That one is really great,
1: and it was reissued recently, so it's not difficult to get. And I think it comes on blood spattered vinyl, of course.
3: The reissues of the spaghetti western soundtracks are very similar to the horror soundtrack reissues, where there's a lot of artwork and they're Beautiful and they're done well, and they tend to be in short runs and very expensive, but they're cool. There have also recently
1: been a lot
3: of, especially over the past year, a lot of
1: reissues of Umiliani's and Alessandrino's works. Their albums seem to be really popping up right now.
3: Yeah, there's that one Alessandrini's soundtrack that I looked and I don't think it was reissued, but gosh, it would have been good. Which one? Hands up, dead man, you're under arrest. Which is also one of my favorite names for Spaghetti Western. All right. I guess it's time to play some songs. All right. I'm going to play our first song. This is a song called Minas de Cobre by a band called Colexico. That was Minus de Cobre for Better Metal by Calexico. Calexico is a band that I think we mentioned in the turntable talk that they are clearly influenced by the Spaghetti Western sound and Morricone, there's no doubt. They were the rhythm section for Giant Sand, but the drummer and bass player Joey Burns and John Convertino left and they uh, moved to Arizona and they made this sort of Americana, Tex mexy indie rock type band, and they're fantastic. I think Joe and I, I think you and I, me have seen them live a couple times together.
1: And Boulder at the Fox Theater, I think.
3: Yeah, yeah. It was great. They were uh, backed by a, like a mariachi band. So it was a real, real cool sound. This song, it's one of their, I think, m- more well known songs, but I think it's a perfect example of kind of how Morricone's influence spread far and wide. It's off a 1998 album, The Black Light, which was originally released on Quarterstick Records. I have a, a 2012 reissue on City Slang. Calexico is, is wonderful. We talk about them fairly often. If you need more of that Spaghetti Western sound from a still active band, they're a good one to check out.
1: My first track today is a song that we talked a lot about early on. It is Peter Tevis with Pastures
6: of Plenty. With the wind, with the wind. It's a mighty hard road that these poor hands have hoed. My poor feet has traveled the hot, dusty road. Out of your dust bowl and westward we rode through deserts so hot. And mountains so cold Well, I've wandered all over your green-growing land And wherever your crops are, I'll lend you my hand On the edge of your cities, you'll see me And then I come with the dust and I'm gone With the wind With the wind With the wind California, Arizona, I've worked on your crops. Then northward up to Oregon, I've gathered your hops. I've dug beets from your ground and I've cut grapes from your vine to set on your table that light sparkling wine. Its green pastures of plenty from dry desert ground. From the Grand Coulee Dam where the waters run down. Every state of this union us migrants have been. We come with the dust and we're gone with the wind.
1: That was Peter Tevis with Pastures of Plenty recorded in 1962 and the music was by Peter Tevis and Ennio Morricone. This was only ever issued in Italy and Japan and it is basically impossible to find those and the copy that I have is released by Trunk Records and it was released in 2020. We talked a lot about this already how tevis and morricone recorded this track it eventually was heard by leone and he loved most of it he ended up cutting out the singer who he did not care for and they re-recorded the music with Alessandroni and and a few other of morricone's crew and they <laughs> turned it into fistful of dollars great track um i like this one too i think it's i think it's fun And my next track is by B.F. Shelton, and it's called Pretty Polly.
8: Pretty Polly, pretty Polly, would you think it unkind? Pretty Polly, pretty Polly, would you think it unkind me to sit down both sides, you emptied my mind. I courted pretty Polly, won't live long night. I courted pretty Polly, will live long night, and left the next morning before it was light. I led her over the hill, through the valleys so deep. I let her over the hill, through the valleys so deep. At last, Freddie Polly beginning to weep. Come on, Freddie Polly, and go along with me. Come on, pretty Polly, and go along with me Before we get married, some pleasure to
4: see
8: Oh, Willie, sweet Willie, I fear from your way Oh, Willie, sweet Willie, I fear from your way The way you are rounding is leading me astray she went up before far she was she could find. She went up his father She she could find a new dog grave and a straight line by had no time to study, no time there to stand. Had no time to study, no time there to stand. He stood with a knife through all in his right
4: hand.
8: Pretty Polly, pretty Polly, you guessing just right. Pretty Polly, pretty Polly, you guessing just right. I dug on your dream six long hours of last night. She threw her arms round him and suffered no fear. She threw her arms round him and suffered no fear. How can you kill a girl that loves you so dear? He stabbed her to the heart, her heart's blood it did flow. She sobbed her through the heart, her heart's blood it did flow, and into the grave pretty Polly did go. Oh, Willie, sweet Willie, turn loose on my hand. Willie, sweet Willie, turn loose on my hand my hand you see my heart blood puddling around where you stand he threw some dirt over her and turned to go home he threw some dirt over her and turned to go home leaving nothing behind him but the bird is too warm gentlemen oh ladies I bid you farewell gentlemen oh ladies I bid you farewell for killing pretty Polly it's in my soul to hell
1: all right that was bf Shelton with a version of pretty Polly which was recorded in 1927 and that bf Shelton song was on a compilation I have from put out by Mississippi Records, who we mention a lot. The compilation is called A Short Life of Trouble, Popular American Ballads, 1927 to 1943. That song has been recorded a lot. And the reason I am playing it tonight is because it's sort of the reason there is spaghetti western music in a way. That song is a folk song that's been around since the early 18th century, when it may or may not have been based on a true story. Uh, We talked many episodes ago about how singers would record songs as news happened, and they would play them in bars or on street corners and kind of get people to hear what's going on. And that was something that may have been based from 1726, when some Some guy killed some girl because she got pregnant, and it was his mistress. And he then died on a boat later on. But um, aside from all that, and we could go into probably a whole turntable talk on the story of that song. It's one of the oldest surviving folk songs. But it's also the inspiration for Pastures of Plenty by Woody Guthrie. He took that tune and... Turned it into pastures of Plenty, which ended up being what Tevis covered when he went to RCA and sang a song to kind of impress the RCA guys. And that's what they ended up using for Fistful of Dollars. So it made its way all the way to that. It's also the basis of Bob Dylan's Ballad of Hollis Brown, uh, the music for that, too. But it's kind of incredibly violent. In the B.F. Shelton version especially, where the protagonist takes the girl, Polly, to the woods where he, the night before, had dug a grave for her. So he knew exactly what he was doing the whole time, kind of like Knoxville Girl, but much darker and more planned out on his part. It's also known by a few different other titles. It was known as the Gosport Tragedy, which is where it may have actually occurred in Gosport, and known as the Cruel Ship's Carpenter.
3: As I say, I just uh, absolutely love it when you can kind of like trace a lineage like that, and especially when it's like where you can trace it to the start of a whole genre, which doesn't really have anything to do with the original song exactly. But just still, like, the dominoes that got set into motion to make that happen are just fascinating to me. It's just one of my favorite things about doing this podcast is finding out that sort of stuff and and being able to trace it and just see how that it kind of worked itself around.
1: It would be great if there was a book just on Pretty Polly, and there certainly is enough information about the song and its history to have a book on it, and I think it would be really interesting.
3: That's our... Our next podcast, the one where we go into the histories of songs, because that's just a whole other fascinating thing, really. Yeah. Early on, we did Stagger Lee, which
1: is one of my favorite song stories as far as the history of the song itself, which we should probably re record that. Pretty Polly has a lineage that's even more impressive.
3: Great song. It was really cool. I liked, I liked how you paired those two. I think that's <laughs> see the evolution. Okay, uh, I guess it's time for my last song. This is another um, another song that I feel was strongly influenced by Morricone and the Spaghetti Western sound. This is Timber Tambor with a song called Grand Canyon.
5: Shadows on the mountain And our shadow on the mountainside After Salt Lake City I have time to close my eyes Before the Grand Canyon Swallows us as we move south I pray the Grand Canyon Take our plane inside its mouth. Under palms ethereal In Hollywood's mysterious wild These are coarse imaginings Where cannibal inspectors
2: thrive
5: On delirious ramblings Now in real and troubling times In the warm confusion Of the looming outside The motel room Obscura A divine by Venetian blind
3: That was Timber Tambor with Grand Canyon off their 2014 record, Hot Dreams. Timber Tambor is a Canadian band led mostly by this guy, Taylor Kirk. And they're really one of my favorite bands of the last 10 years. Uh, I really love their music. It's very moody. It's very atmospheric. And this is an album that gives that impression that you're driving across the West, that... I don't do now so much, but when I was a kid, we would drive to the Grand Canyon or we'd drive across eastern Colorado, and there's just this openness and this airiness, and I feel like that whole album, Hot Dreams, but especially the song, perfectly present that soundscape. He uses some interesting interesting instrumentation. He has a Eboed lap steel a Theremin, and I was like, wow, I'm going to look it up and see if he was actually... Truly influenced by Morricone, or if I'm just making it up. And and he says in an interview that they were by Morricone and Lalo Schifferin, who uh, is the guy who did the Mission Impossible theme and a bunch of other famous movie scores. The song kind of came as they were trying to soundtrack horror movies, and it just wasn't working for them. So they kind of scrapped that idea but kept some of the drive to make music for soundtracks of movies that don't exist. And uh, it's a beautiful song. I really enjoy it. And definitely more Kona influenced uh, And they're, again, another active band. I think they're not broken up, but um highly recommend you check them out. Each album has kind of a different flavor, but they're all pretty great and moody. So Timber Timber, check them out. All right, so are you ready to try this trivia again? I am not, but let's do it. All right, I'm going to give a hint for people because I think that will help. Again, it's eight more Kone songs or scores or cues, whatever you want to call them. Four of them are westerns. One is for a horror. Two are for gangster movies. And one's for kind of a, I guess you could say a romance. So I don't know if that helps you, but um, I'm going to go ahead and play them again. And remember, you, these are all... Backwards Ennio Morricone songs You're just going to tell me what movie they come from Alright, here we go Track one Track two 3 six Got
1: number one is the good, the bad, and the ugly. Absolutely, yep.
3: Sounds it sounds pretty close, forwards or backwards, actually. The
1: rest of them, I don't know any of them. Like, I could name movies, um, I recognize one of the other ones, but I don't know what it is.
3: Well, so you just waving the white flag. I just, I just broke you.
1: I guess so, yeah. I really, I really have no idea what the rest of them are. I'm sure people that people listening do but i can't get them
3: okay so let's see number two is a uh brian de palma movie that was the untouchables gosh i I love that movie when i was a kid that's
1: a good movie i like the um robert de niro with the bat scene
3: (laughs) that is a classic scene really fun hilarious like uh, the Canadian, i like the canadian mountie saving the day Number three is one we actually t- talked about in the um, turntable talk. Is it the Burt Reynolds one? Uh-huh. Navajo Joe? Navajo Joe. Very good. Okay. Number four, I wouldn't have got this. I I, don't, I put it in because it's apparently an incredibly famous theme, but I'd, I've never seen the movie, so I don't know. It's Cinema Paradiso. Okay. You ever seen that? Um, I've heard of it. Okay.
1: I don't know if I've seen it or not, honestly.
3: All right. Number five is a horror movie he did. It's a cold horror movie. The Thing? The Thing.
1: Ah, okay.
3: It's got a great pulsing bass line. All right. Number six is maybe the greatest movie soundtrack of all time.
1: Once Upon a Time in the West?
3: Yep. And number seven is... Once Upon a Time in America? Yes. Very good. And number eight is the only one he won an Oscar for. Hateful Eight. Hateful Eight, number eight. So I was trying to
1: give you clues in there, but... That was a really fun quiz. I wish I would have gotten some more of them, because once you say them, I can hear it. I just, oof, I
3: couldn't get them. Yeah, I had to put them backwards. Couldn't make it too easy. I've been listening to Spaghetti Western for almost a month straight now, so it's hard to know if, like, I'm just so into it that it's easy for me or not, but I don't know. Who knows? Well, uh, I think we need to say thank you to our podcast network, Pantheon Podcast. Uh, They give us a lot of support, and if you are a music lover, uh, they have all sorts of fantastic different shows, uh, different perspectives and ideas on music, and it is worth your time to dig through the treasure trove of uh, podcast, music podcast, because you will find something that you like, I guarantee it.
1: Yeah, they've got a lot of great ones. I think I've mentioned this before, but Performance Anxiety is, is a really good one with a lot of wonderful interviews. The list of great podcasts they have is pretty impressive.
3: And I want to give a shout out to uh, Peoptic Records, or people in a position to know, uh, that is run by our friend Mike Dixon, who's been on the podcast and has helped out uh, behind the scenes on many podcasts, but he um, he gave the podcast a little push in his latest email newsletter thing, and so we really appreciate him doing that. If you are a vinyl collector, you need to go to his website and see what he's selling because it is some crazy vinyl art. There's a lot of great music, but there's also a lot of great music that's put on super weird and collectible Physical media, and it's worth your time checking it out. And that's, uh, I believe, it's pioptic dot com. If not, just just Google p i a p t k. And he's always coming out with some pretty great new music and stuff like that. But um, we appreciate him, and he he helps out a lot. So, uh, but also a great great label. You should check out. All right, social media. We have that. Good.
1: We are on. A few of those things. We have uh, Twitter, we have Instagram, and Facebook. On Instagram and Twitter, we have a handle of HighwayHiFiPod, and on Facebook, we have a page that is very easy to find. You can also email us. Our email address is Podcast at gmail.com. Please send us messages, talk to us about records, music, whatever you want. We're lonely. We are.
3: <laughs> we haven't begged for reviews or stars, but uh, yeah, that would be good if you all got like a minute to smash that five stars or whatever Whatever you do. I think that's a good thing for us. That would be very kind. Yeah, more importantly than that, maybe tell somebody. if you. The thing, the longer I go into this and the longer we, we talk about this, I recognize that like... There's probably not as many people who are into weird vinyl records and weird music like we are. But the people who are into it are great. <laughs> and I enjoy them very much. And they, It's just great that some people enjoy this at all. Reach out to us or maybe tell some of your friends. You know who your music people are. You know who would listen to a bunch of weird Spaghetti Western beyond just the good, the bad, and the ugly. I mean... Find those people, let them know about us, and me, you know, that would help us a lot. Or just enjoy the podcast on your own. You know, we're not gonna tell you how to live. You you be you.
1: I wish we could have found spaghetti western music with bagpipes. Haggis westerns.
3: Hag- <laughs> the Scottish Westerns. <laughs> it's basically Highlander. <laughs> All right, and the last thing is, if you do have some money to blow, go buy a record or go to a record store, buy several records, or support somebody's band camp or do do something to help music. You know, we, we do play some music on this, but it's never to take away from the artist, but hopefully to showcase them and throw some people their way. Artists are still having a hard time, and if you have a few dollars, maybe some of your, your stimulus check or... Like one kid told me, Uncle Joe's money. <laughs> Go ahead <laughs> and <laughs> he was spending it on who's but you should spend. <laughs> you're a full grown person, so you should spend it on records, not Yoo-Hoo's. So, yeah, goodbye, record. Or uh, I think concerts are starting, so maybe if that's safe outside and you're vaccinated and wearing a mask, that might be okay. But there's plenty of. Non pandemic y ways to, to support artists or do that. Well, thanks so much for listening, and we will see you next time. End. Hey, Joe. Yeah. What, what do you call it when uh, Banjo asks you to uh, meet him in the street for a gunfight?
1: I don't know. What do you call it when Banjo asks you to meet him in the street for a gunfight?
3: Dueling banjos. Oh, very good! Very good. That was that, was, that one was That's off clever. the no- that was off the noggin. Just for you, that was just a little bonus track for you.
1: Wow, that bonus was...
3: joke. It's clever. Because um... you're not gonna have enough shit to cut out of this <laughs> 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 <laughs>